Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of May 9th, 2023. I thought it was an excellent week of books this week. Uh, had some continuing favorites, had some debuts, uh, and I thought overall it was pretty strong. What do you think, Rocky? Uh, yes, and it's. Uh, I thought it was particularly strong for a certain uh, wielder of a green lantern ring. So, yeah, yeah I, th I thought it was... I enjoyed this week. Uh, it was, uh, well, again, it was a little bit hit. You know, I, I, there's going to be some stinkers. I'm not going to lie, but uh, I was uh, I was generally pleased. Some pleasant surprises, yes. All right, well, let's uh, not waste any time. Let's dive right in. We've got about 10, 11 books to talk about. Kicking off with Batman Incorporated number eight. Uh, this is Joker Incorporated part one. We knew it was coming. It's been teased by writer Ed Brisson for a little bit. John Timms is the artist. Rex Locus on colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, we all know how I feel about Joker uh, and there's no need for me to go into that, but I will say like when it, when it comes to the characterization of the Joker himself, you know, as much as I, I am not a fan of reading Joker stories, if I have to read Joker stories, this is the Joker that I like. This is a Joker. That's interesting. I talked the last time about how, uh, with, um, the man who stopped laughing, uh, the uh, Matthew Rosenberg series about how the Joker could go from one of my least favorite characters to maybe one of my favorite because there's potential for him to be so interesting with different variations and the mystery of that and to have it all explained and laid out or what have you. Ed Brisson is, is taking what's already there, forgetting about all the, all the nonsense of multiple Jokers and just giving me the Joker that I find sort of the most authentic, right? Like he, he's not a physical specimen. He's not going to go toe to toe with Batman. I mean, that's always one of the biggest beefs I have with when people write the Joker and he's, physically able to stand up to Batman, fight hand-to-hand -hand combat. I mean, that's just, that's not what Ed Brisson is doing here. Ed Brisson is giving us a Joker who's a, a puppet master. He's a Svengali, right? Like he's, he's pulling the strings. He's setting up threats, not just for Batman, but for all the Batmen of Batman Incorporated. Because um, this whole, whole idea, this whole premise is, well, a Batman needs a Joker. And if you're going to have Batman Incorporated, then you need Joker Incorporated. You need Jokers around the world to stand up to these Batman to be their foils, to be their nemeses, to be their antithesis, however you want to put it. So that's, that's interesting. And that seems like something a Joker would do, right? The old school Joker of, of my childhood that I read, you know, not this newfangled seemingly superpowered Joker. Like this is a Joker that's more about setting things up and coming up with these uh, elaborate plans where he's thought 10 steps ahead and I, I thought it really worked. I thought it really worked. Uh, the John T. was solid. Um, if I had any complaint or any nitpick about Batman Incorporated, there are so many characters. Um, but I'll give Ed credit. I don't know if he's you know listening to our reviews or just listening to feedback from fans. I noticed that the the um, members of Batman Incorporated call each other by name a lot more than they did in the early. Years. They're saying, "Hey, Knight. Hey, Hero. Hey, Gray Wolf." what have you. So, you know, a chance for people to, to kind of learn who these characters are. Um, still in terms of characterization, it's slow going to really have a, a handle or a, kind of a touch point or relatability to these characters because there are so many. Uh, and I have to imagine it's, um, it's a real challenge for Ed to give us character arcs, give us growth for these characters because there are so many. When you talk about a team book, something like, I don't know, uh, Justice League or the Avengers, those are well-established characters, right? Most of them that have had their own titles. So you, you kind of know going in who they are. Um, 
something like the new X-Men back in the day is a real good example where that wasn't the case, right? Like Chris Claremont came on with issue 98. They stopped doing reprints. They brought in these new characters, most of whom were brand new. Wolverine obviously had showed up before. Um, Sunfire had showed up before, what have you. But, you know, Storm, Nightcrawler, Colossus, these were new characters. And it was up to Chris Claremont to to show some growth with those characters. There's a huge difference, right? Like art back then wasn't as detailed as now. So you had more panels per page. And also go back and look at those books. Go back and look at those early Claremont Cockrum or Claremont Byrne issues of X-Men. And you just see walls of text. And that's one of the things that played about back then was that Claremont was so wordy, but it, he needed to do that in order to establish characterization. You can't make comics like that anymore. And so, again, it's a real challenge for Ed, I think, to give us relatability, give us characterization. It's coming, but it's coming very slowly. And I wonder if in the long run that might hurt this title um, a little bit. So anyway, what did you think overall, Rocky? I, uh, I thought that this was... I thought that this was a little bit of a step backwards in, in my opinion. I, I didn't mind it, but I thought I Joker Incorporated is it, – it just seems like such a cliche idea. Although I'd be lying if I said it, it, it doesn't make some degree of sense given the Joker's mentality. If Batman's going to have the audacity to have a bunch of – as Joker describes – I mean Joker actually he, – he says it. He goes uh, – he says if uh, – Hearing that Batman was trying to corner the market on lending out his likeness to goofballs around the globe gave me the hell of an idea. And and I, I can't help but think that a lot of these, the, the characters of uh, Batman Incorporated do kind of look like goofballs. They all look like wannabe Batmans. They really actually do look like that in many ways. And and don't get me wrong, I don't, I don't mind, you know, I, I like ba- Batman Incorporated, but I can see the Joker maybe being a little bit frustrated with it, uh, you know, that, you know, if you're going to have your day in the sun, why not me too? Now, having said that, there, there are a lot of characters in this comic, and I still think that there's way too many. It, it's just it, there's too many characters, and and uh, th- this has more characters than I mean. It, this has I mean I always think that Justice League should have seven characters. This has this just has just too many, and and uh, I, I still find myself having to go back and double check. And this is uh, I read this issue three times, and I. I did have to Google again to find these characters. Uh, as a matter of fact, these characters, uh, I even find it difficult uh, when I when I go on to the Wikipedia page uh, because a lot of these characters are so new that I'm, I'm still, I still have to double check myself. But in any event, uh, we know we know that uh, Ghostmaker and El Gacho, these character, uh, El, uh, Ghostmaker and El, pa- uh, El Gacho are scolding the Batman of China or rather, uh, Ghostmaker is because uh, he failed to stop his sister. Uh, his sister Alpaco defeated him last issue, and uh, ultimately, uh, Ghostmaker and uh, basically was very hard on, on the Batman of China, saying, "You know, let us handle this. Go, you're basically we're taking you off the board." And Ghostmaker and El Gacho go, and they end up confronting the Joker by the end of the issue. In the meantime, in between that, 
Anzar and Benzel, who are the Grey Wolf and Knight, it's revealed that they have a romantic relationship that uh, Ghostmaker probably knows about, uh, or but you know because Ghostmaker seems to know everything. But uh, but Grey Wolf and Knight seem to be uh, romantically attracted to each other and involved. And Grey Wolf reveals that he's thinking of quitting the team and going back to Chechnya, his home country of Chechnya. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, before they can continue their date, uh, they get called out by uh, Ghostmaker because the joke various members of Joker Incorporated are engaging in terrorist attacks around the globe. That's me oversimplifying things. In the meantime, we also know that the chief of Man Bats was shot by Dusty Bronco, who was one of the members of Joker Incorporated at the end of last issue. And chief of Man Bats, his sidekick, Raven Red, is by his bedside in the hospital, along with uh, Gyro and Clown Hunter, who are also there. And uh, Raven Red vows revenge against Dusty Bronco for what happened to chief of Man Bats. And Night Runner is in Paris, France, where he confronts Charles de Gaulle, who I think is a number member, another member of Joker Incorporated. And he's got his, instead of Cirque du Soleil, he's got his Cirque de la Morte or Circus of Death. And then we've got the Dark Ranger in Australia and Wingman, both of which were suspended by Ghostmaker last issue. And they moved to help Night Runner, who uh, in uh, Night Runner's calling for help because he's alone against Charles de Gaulle in Paris. But Dark Ranger and Wingman end up having to uh, deal with their own terrorist attack in Melbourne, Australia. So, so we have all these moving parts to address, and all this appears to be minions of the Joker causing all this chaos. And you know, there's a lot of moving parts here. And if you're if you're up for the challenge or maybe just a little bit more on the ball uh, than me, maybe you don't have to read it three times. I'm glad I did. Ed Brisson is, is Ed Brisson is doing a you know he's doing a reasonably good job because I I gotta admit I it's kind of hard. While I can get frustrated with him, I can imagine it's very hard to you know to sort of manage all these players. But he does he does do it. I would still really appreciate some help. I really think there's no excuse. You could still have a, a cover page at the beginning that has all these talking heads on the sides. I mean, go traditional DC. It's down to the DCU. You know, harken back to a traditional age. Have, uh, I mean, do that. Have the talking heads on, have the heads on both sides of the page with their names underneath at the opening page, with the credits on the opening page instead of the middle of the book. I mean, there's this, this is very basic creative uh, ways of doing this, which I'm so surprised they don't use for these big books. But Ed Brisson, uh, I'm, I'm curious as to where this is going, although I can imagine it's uh, it, it's very interesting that the Joker is uh, is confronting that Ghostmaker's part of this. I would think that if the Joker's doing this, I would think the Joker might be a little frustrated or pissed off that he has to deal with Ghostmaker. Because Ghostmaker, uh, I wonder what the Joker actually thinks about Ghostmaker. That's what I'm curious about. We know that Joker has, a, has an obsession with Batman. What does Ghostmaker really think or pardon me, what does Joker really think about Ghostmaker? Does he think that Ghostmaker is just a wannabe Batman too, or just a goofy ripoff of Batman? What does he actually think of uh, Ghostmaker? I'd be really curious. And will Ghostmaker move to try to kill the Joker? Because we've got hints of the Ghostmaker's uh, uh, predisposition to want to use lethal force in previous issues. So I got a lot of interesting questions here, and uh, all in all, not a bad comic. Yeah, 100%. Um it seems like we both kind of have the same complaint about it though, but it's sort of inherent in the, in the premise, right? There's going to be a lot of characters. So just kind of have to, to grin and get through it. So, yeah. uh, well, you mentioned this one in the lead up, uh, green lantern, number one, the debut of Jeremy Adams on the character as the writer, 
art by Zermonico, colors by Romulo Pardo Jr., and letters by Dave Sharp. What'd you think? Uh, well, we got, uh, well, I, I know what I wanted for Green Lantern. And I have to say that uh, when I was at the Calgary Expo, I was, I felt very lucky, both uh, Trevor and I, uh, Trevor Lankevich, the writer and uh, creator of Area 51 Helix Project. Him and I, I was there promoting his comic, helping him promote that. It was, I had a great time at the uh, Calgary uh, Expo. And uh, Jeremy Adams was there. And uh, Jeremy Adams uh, joined us for supper one night. And uh, we had a great time. And he, he talked about the joys uh, and the ups and downs of uh, and his love for DC Comics and the love for these characters. And I can tell you that... Uh, Jeremy Adams, he was very nervous about the reception of how people might view this uh, Green Lantern. He's very nervous. He wants people to love this this opening issue. And uh, I had I told him that I had already read it at that time because we get these uh, we get these as you know obviously for the bulls listening we uh, Jason and I we get preview copies, and I mean I love this and the reason why I love it is uh, number one the the, the art's fantastic. Uh, Exermanico on the art is fantastic. Uh, uh, Fujito Jr.'s colors are, are amazing. And it just, uh, it, it really does, the colors just really pop off the page. And even the opening, uh, there's an opening sequence here where uh, Green Lantern rescues some miners that are trapped. And, you know, we know that he's back on Earth. And then we got, we almost got this opening scrawl. And I just, I couldn't help but think of Star Wars when I saw the scrawl here. Even though it's not technically a scrawl, uh, like a, like in Star Wars, you got that opening scrawl sort of explaining what's happening. I've always, the Green Lantern Corps is always like the Star Wars of the DC Universe. And, you know, it is a time of radical change in the galaxy. I mean, it sounds, it starts off sounding like Star Wars. And the Guardians of Oa have disappeared. And in their absence, the United Planets have seized control of the Green Lantern Corps. I mean, I love that Jeremy Adams is explaining everything up front. Because one of the things that uh, that uh, Jeremy Adams was challenged with was the ending of Jeffrey Thorne's Green Lantern run, which left a lot of change in the Green Lantern universe. The, the United Planets were essentially in control of, the, there were no more Guardians. The Green Lantern, uh, the, the United Planets had more of a role with respect to the Green Lantern Corps. And uh, we had a sort of a, uh, uh, a, a, a a kind of a complicated dual ending for Jon Stewart. There's technically two of them, one in, in our in our galaxy and one in the dark sector. And it, it got it, w- it was complicated. And so we got Philip Kennedy Johnson at the backup of this writing uh, John a uh, John Stewart story. And we got we got Jeremy Adams here. Thankfully, Jeremy Adams keeps it simple and very grounded. This is Hal Jordan returning to Earth. Uh, we get sort of we we get a. We get a flashback of one month. He's been Hal Jordan has been on on Earth for one month. It takes him one month to build up enough, I guess, nerve to contact Carol Ferris. Uh, there is a. It's very much. I got very much kind of like a Top Gun feel to it, which which I love. It's Hal Jordan. He's returning. He's a test pilot. Carol Ferris is. You know, she's. There's a lot of romantic and sexual tension between the two of them. Carol Ferris already. Ha- she has a fiance, which she sort of flaunts and tells him. Because, but she, you can tell she's very attracted. She's still attracted to Hal Jordan, and she's uh, she's upset with herself that she, that she finds Hal Jordan so damn attractive. So there's. You could tell there's romantic tension there. There's humor there. I like that Jeremy Adams keeps it simple. He even uh, he re- references uh, Carol Ferris's Zamoran background with the Star Sapphires, but he just mentions it. He keeps things simple. He keeps this character driven, and that's what I think is going to be very attractive to new readers, and especially, dare I say, Top Gun. 
I mean, this this has a Top Gun feel uh, to it as well. Uh, even though uh, you know there's a there's a scene that's reminiscent of Top Gun with that might seem a little bit tropey. Uh, you know, with with Carol with uh, Hell Jordan sort of you know doing the test run on uh, uh, as a fighter pilot, but it ends up being that it was it was all uh, it's all in sort of like. Uh, uh, computer-generated uh, test run and through drones and what have you. But the, the art is fantastic. There, there's one great scene where uh, a goat, you know, these jets fly across this this mountaintop and they're flying so fast that the, the goat flies right off the, the, to the end of the, the top of the cliff. And it's just fantastic. Examonico's art is just really, really, it's it's just frankly excellent. And you get a sense of the energy and and the the power and the speed and, the, and just, you get a sense that this is a Top Gun type of story and I'm just I was just impressed and you know Hal Jordan you know at, at one point before the month before he confronts Carol Ferris he ends up uh, driving uh, driving an old red pickup truck into Coast City because there's a there's a there's a guy there by the name of uh, Steel Fury who's stolen some Manhunter tech and uh, instead of using his Green Lantern ring to fly to Coast City he drives his old pickup truck he's only got fifty dollars to his name Hal Jordan isn't even he's not even clear why he why he's on Earth or why he came back other than the fact that. Hell Jordan always is somewhat, he, he's always been defiant of the Guardians, and now he's defiant of the United Planets. The United Planets said Earth is cut off from the rest of the, of the gal, uh, is cut off from the rest of the Green Lantern Corps, is persona non grata, no member of the Green Lantern Corps can, uh, can be in, in Sector 2814 where Earth is located. Well, Hell Jordan basically says, screw you, and so he's going to go, and not only is he going to be in that sector, but he's going to make his home, he's going to go back home to Earth. And so this issue, I mean, what I love about it is that it ends, so many questions arise, you know, why did Hal Jordan specifically come back to Earth in defiance of the United Planets Directive? Why did the United Planets even quarantine Earth in the first place? Uh, why is Sinestro in a bar on Earth near Coast City? Why, what's, what the hell is Sinestro doing here? Um, does Hal have access to a pow power battery? How is it, how are his ring uh, powered? Uh, uh, who is Carol Ferris's fiance? We don't know this. What will the United Planets do when they find out that Hell Jordan is defined has defied their order? So there's there's so so much here to love about this uh, Hell Jordan story. Just wet, wetting the appetite, getting us pulling us into this story. It's very accessible. It's easy to understand. You don't need to know all the riffraff of the of the Green Lantern convoluted history that Jeffrey Thorne brought us. This is just going back to basics, and I love it. And uh, I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about it before we talk about the John Stewart story, which was the backup by Philip Kennedy Johnson. Yeah, so a couple things. I said boyfriend, don't know fiance. Maybe that's something that Jeremy Adams said when he talked to him. The other thing is that I don't think Hal has a ring. He doesn't have power when he shows up, when he goes and asks Carol for a job, when he's sitting on top of his trailer looking up at the stars. He doesn't. He's not Green Lantern. He doesn't have any power. It's not until the guy with the Manhunter armor fires his energy at him. You know, he talked about using his truck and driving to Coast City instead of flying because he doesn't have a ring. He doesn't have a battery. He's banished, uh, and he decided to go back home, um, you know, in defiance of the United Planets, like you said. But it's when the Manhunter fires the energy at him, he seems to absorb it, then seems to be able to form a ring. So my guess, and it's only a guess, I haven't talked to Jeremy about any story points oh. is he's going to turn that man under armor into a battery my guess 
Um, so, but you're right. I guess you're right. At the end, it says next a plane explosion, demolition team strikes to meet Carol's fiance. Yeah, she. So he is he is a fiance. She called him boyfriend to Hal when they they spoke earlier. So yeah, there's a lot of questions here. Um, I agree with you. A little bit of a Top Gun vibe. A uh, little bit of a sort of classic um, vibe of of Green Lantern before you said Jeffrey Thorne. I mean, a lot of people love the Jeff Johns run. They'll cite that as their favorite Green Lantern run of all time. And it certainly is cosmic and it's huge in scope. Um, but back in the day, excuse me, a lot of the Green Lantern stories from my favorite era were on Earth. It wasn't how you know, fighting these intergalactic aliens and stopping the universe from ending. He was on earth and he was fighting like black hand or Hector Hammond or the javelin. And those were fun stories. It didn't have to be, you know, green lantern space cop. We've gotten a lot of green lantern space cop over the last God, almost two decades now. So I'm sort of ready for, you know, more grounded story that doesn't have, a Green Lantern family feel. You know, we've talked recently about how DC books seem to everybody, everything's a family. It's the Batman family. It's a Superman family. I'm ready for just a Hal Jordan book focused on Hal Jordan, focused on, you know, whether it's Hal and Carol and that dynamic relationship, which, you know, obviously if she has a fiance, there's going to be, you know, a mess there. And just Hal being Hal and some actual characterization of Hal and, rather than, he's Green Lantern first and he's Hal Jordan second. I, I kind of wouldn't mind seeing 50-50. I'm not saying he's got to be Hal more than Green Lantern. Uh, that might get boring, to be honest. But Hal is my favorite Green Lantern and always has been. So for me, this feels very classic and a little bit familiar, but you know, with plenty of new elements. And the art completely blew me away. Zermonico did a fantastic job. So yeah, I, I'm all in on this. Um, there's some humor, uh, and there's just, like I said, a classic feel, which, you know, when you consider the writer, it's not really a surprise, kind of the tone of the book. Um, yeah. And you didn't mention anything about the covers, although you did mention Sinestro and what the heck Sinestro doing sitting in a bar wearing like a, a leather jacket with a hood on it. Um, that's my favorite cover. There's some fantastic covers here, and uh, and that's my favorite cover as well. Um so, yeah, I, I can't say anything bad about this comic. I really, really loved it as a, you know, a Green Lantern fan. And Hal, as I said, is my Green Lantern. And that's a, as opposed to Flash, where Barry Allen is my, what I would consider my favorite Flash. And Jeremy gave us fa a fantastic Wally West. And I had every confidence in Jeremy and his ability because of how much he loves these characters how invested he is that he would give us a great story. And yeah, right from the first issue, that's a hundred percent the case. This is just, it feels like Hal Jordan. It, it feels like a Green Lantern comic from my, my favorite run, which a lot of that was written. God, I'm trying to remember who the writer was. It was Dave Gibbons, uh, Len Wein. Uh, so we're talking about like maybe issue one, 79 180 somewhere in that range up to uh almost 200 that's where how eventually quits it's where we see john stewart for the first time we see guy gardner reappear um and that was just a fantastic era um so yeah. and i had that that was how b 
being Hal and a lot of characterization of Hal because, as I said, he quit the core for a lot of the reasons I was just talking about. He was tired of the Guardians to do and never getting a chance to be on Earth. So in that way, this kind of mirrors that, right? Like he's back on Earth. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Here. I think that you hinted at it, but uh, yeah, maybe he he his ring was depowered because he did drive the truck into the city to fight Steel Fury, and then it must have been he must have powered up his ring from the Manhunter suit or something. Uh, yeah, and then goes and rescues the miners. Carol sees that on TV, then he right. goes and talks to him. So okay, yeah, yeah. Thank you yeah, for that. I, did, I didn't quite piece all that together until I until until you stated that. So. <laughs> I was wondering the same thing. I'm like, why is he driving to the, why, why is he driving? And when the cop is telling him, who are you? Get out of here. Get out of here. What, why aren't you like, I'm Green Lantern, you know, transform, but he doesn't. It's not until he gets fired upon by the manhunter. So uh, yeah. anyway, fantastic job. Let's move on. Uh, Danger Street number six is up next. Dingbats of Danger Street, chapter six, book six, whatever you want to say. Uh, Tom King is the writer, Jorge Fornes on art. Did you you want to talk about PKJ, the backup Green Lantern? That's right. Yeah, go ahead. Talk about the backup in Green Lantern. I totally forgot about that. Um, Yeah, I have to. I closed it. Let me reopen it while you talk about it. Yeah, well, uh, the the backup with PKJ deals with uh, John Stewart, and it uh, it appears it appears that it's going to be John Stewart on the John Stewart of that we know and love in our universe. Uh, it's going to be dealing with the story of a Green Lantern Corps from another universe and another planet, which is, or another universe and another Earth, which is uh, 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 kind of a little bit, th- throws me off a little bit, to be honest. But uh, he, it's John Stewart in another universe and another time, uh, where we're shown a young, a young, Hal, a young, um, sorry, a young Guy Gardner. Is is being trained by some other Green Lantern Corps member, and they're fighting the Revenant Queen, and it's the Revenant Gardner. Queen. Guy Gardner's the old guy. The old guy's Guy Gardner. Is it? Well, how come the young guy looks like Guy Gardner then? No, the old guy. It's the old guy. See, he's got the orange hair, and especially if you look at the one where he says, "Now charge your ring on the Eternal Watchfire." Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I, I missed that. That wasn't uh yeah, okay. So it's an older guy, Gardner, at some point, another time, another I guess another future. Um oh okay, yeah, that I guess that does look right. I'm not really sure then and he's a, a new Green Lantern. I'm not sure what his name is. There's is there's yeah. a new green They call him I thought they said his name. Um, I mean, he says Shepherd at one point. Shepherd, yeah, I think so. Okay. Um. All right. Well, yeah. In any event, it's it's kind of. Uh, I, I to be honest, I'm I'm I was a little bit confused by it. Uh, I because we have we have we have guy we have John Stewart on our Earth, and now we've got Green Lantern cores in another universe and another time. And I guess, like you said, it's an older guy, Gardner, who ends up, looks to be mortally wounded. And then another guy who looks like Guy Gardner, <laughs> but doesn't have a name. Uh, again, I, I, I'm a little bit, I was a little bit disappointed with it, if I'm brutally honest. I, uh, and the rise of the Revenant Queen doesn't really, I'm not really sure 
This feels, if I didn't know better, I thought it was maybe written by Jeffrey Thorne, uh, to be honest, because it sort of seems like the same old, same old, let's, let's go off into different multiverses and everything else. So I'm, but this Revenant Queen is looking for the builder and the guardian of Jon Stewart. So I'm not, you know, at some point I understand this might overlap with uh, Jeremy Adams' story. Jeremy Adams has sung the praises of PKJ. He knows where Philip Kennedy Johnson is going to be taking this story. And so uh, on that basis of that, I'll, I'll trust in what Jeremy Adams is saying because he knows where this story is headed. But uh, the art's fantastic. The art by uh, Montos Art is amazing with PKJ. I just I just don't know where where it's going and I'm not really sure what's going to happen when there's an overlap into our universe where it's going to be headed but I'm 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 prepared to have a lot of faith in PKJ uh and so it it's is there's not enough pages for me to go on here and and obviously what the hell do I know I I apparently have been confused about, about two major plot points in both these stories so <laughs> why don't you enlighten me what do you, what do you, do you think about the backup yeah, uh, interesting. I mean, the first few pages with Jon Stewart felt like a little bit of a throwaway. To be. We know that PKJ has a John, six-issue Jon Stewart miniseries coming up at some point. And Jeffrey Thorne obviously made Jon Stewart immensely powerful. So where he'll be, where Jon Stewart will be going forward, you know, we just we just don't know. Um, it's so interesting. Jon's in a strange place, right? Because for a lot of people, he is their Green Lantern, like how Jordan is mine because that's the first Green Lantern they were exposed to on the Justice League uh, cartoon, Justice League Unlimited. So it, I wish that DC would establish a baseline for him, so to speak, and kind of give him a chance to just be who he is without you know, elevating him to godhood or yanking him in, in this direction, dark sector this and, and whatever. Just give us like a solid baseline of just Jon Stewart, right? Because it's the, sort of the same problem I was talking about with that whole family idea. And John Stewart being military and natural born leader and blah, blah, blah. And there's so many Green Lanterns, whether it be Hal Jordan or Guy Gardner or John Stewart or Simon Baz or uh, Jessica Cruz or, you know, those are just the earthbound ones, right? Or, or, or earthborn ones. And you start talking about Kilowog and Salak and uh, just, you know, it goes on and on and on. And, and people like these characters and they want to see them. And I think there's a temptation for the writers to play with them. But again, it becomes less special when you have so many. So showcasing John's leadership and having him as leaders of the uh, leader of the entire core after the guardians left, you know, it says a lot about who John Stewart is and his importance as a lantern and what have you. But again, I think getting back to the basics, getting back to the roots of who the character is, is that's what interests me the most. So with what we get in these first couple pages of talking to his mother and saying, you know, a lot's happened. I need time. I'm here. I'm home. What comes next? You know, I'm not sure. Maybe that's PKJ planting the seeds for that. I guess we'll have to wait and see. And then as far as the jumping to another universe, another time with the old Guy Gardner, for, first of all, the Montas art, like you said, uh, is, is it's not my favorite style of art because it's not really clean, but it suits the story and the tone and this revenant queen who's sort of the villain of the piece so well, it's hard not to say that it's the, the art is chosen perfectly for this project. Um, and the colors by Adriana Lucas are solid and, and great letters by Dave Sharp as well. So the whole creative team really did a fantastic job. I agree with you, Rocky. We needed some more pages for things to be a little more clear, but it is really interesting seeing this older guy, Gardner, who's not just a total tool, uh, training this guy. I do believe his name is Shepard. 
Because at one point he says, Shepard, if those things extinguish the watch fire, everything in the universe will go dark. You can't let that happen. So, um, and, he, and he says, you know, uh, Kyle Rayner sent you to me because he saw something in you. So this Shepard character may be somebody that, that's uh, of importance to the story. I guess we'll have to wait and see. But I thought Montas did a great job of giving us an older looking gardener. I, I, I felt he was recognizable as Guy Gardner right away. Longer hair, plenty of gray, has the beard, but, you know, still has that trademark uh, orange hair. So, yeah, I, I was I was completely thrown by the, the younger guard, uh, by the younger uh, looking kid that looked like Guy Gardner. And obviously that's what Kyle Rayner saw in the guy. He probably reminded him of a young Guy Gardner. That's why he sent <laughs> Shepard there. I'm sure that's why he sent him. Yeah, I didn't really think he looked like Guy Gardner. His hair is more red than orange and it, and it's like spiky as opposed to Guy I always had. Either the like, you know the. Yeah. Short, but this this the, is a different universe, though, right? It's a different universe. So I'm just thinking. I, that's why I was thinking. Well, different universe, different variations on the character. But but no, straight up, the, the older guy guy even has Guy Gardner's patented costume, the same style of suit. Like I was yeah. just, I just plain missed it. I was just, I was thinking something different when I when I was reading it. I saw a different universe, and I just, I wasn't even thinking about mainstream. So. But it's very close to mainstream styles and everything else. So, but you know, I'm, yeah. I'm actually more interested about where it might be going now. Now that we're talking about it, than I was when I initially read it. So, we'll see. Yeah, here's the the other part of it is that PKJ he's he's a world builder, right? Like he builds big stuff, um, and so I'm sure he has huge ideas. And, and so again, the, the limited pages here, and so we're kind of thrown right in the middle. Not, he's not getting a chance to sort of build up to it slowly. He just doesn't have the, the room or the space for it. So I'm sure it'll all be explained in time. Um, and like you said, you, that you have faith in him. I, I do as well. I think that this will end up being really good. Um, but it's just a matter of, you know, giving him the space that he needs. So, uh, and who knows? I mean, six issues doesn't sound like enough space either um, for that matter. So anyway, getting back to the uh, dingbats of Danger Street. As I said, Tom King's the writer, Jorge Fornes on art. Dave Stewart on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. Um, this entire issue is narrated by the Dr. Fate helmet. Where we get that um, flowery, flowery, flowery. <laughs> I can't even talk. We get that flowery speech and uh, this idea of it as, as a fairy tale with princes and princesses and ogres and dragons and monsters and what have you. And so uh, this issue really brings that back, that tone back really, really well. Um, and it continues to be just a fascinating story, and it's uh, it's a hundred percent testament to the fact that you can tell an interesting story with any character. If the story's good, you know the fact that these characters are less well known won't matter. The fact that it's the Dingbats of Danger Street or the Outsiders, and not the Outsiders from Batman fame, but the original Outsiders show up here, which kind of misfits, um, mutants, and what have you. Uh, or, or the the green team as bad guys, or you know Travis Morgan Warlord, like this story. The fact, and I keep saying it, the fact that Tom King has taken all these obscure characters and woven a tale that has really become a page turner is fascinating to me. Um, the, the motivations, the characterization, and again going back to that vocabulary of the Doctor Fate helmet narrating the story. I mean, Lady Cop is is interesting. Lady Cop has moments, um, and she's in like one or two comics in her entire existence. I mean, that that is fantastic writing. And uh, speaking of you know the perfect artist on the perfect project, Jorge Fornes with his uh, 
somewhat grounded and realistic style gives us fantastic art here. And for anybody who thinks that, you know, he can only draw like Batman or uh, crime noir type stuff that's really uh, street level, man, take a look at the pages where he's drawing Darkseid or Highfather or the, the worlds of um, Apocalypse and New Genesis. Uh, the guy is just uber talented. So I, I'm so enjoying this. I look forward to these issues every time and they don't disappoint. Um, I'm just really curious to see how all this comes together in the end um, because it, it definitely has that feel, right, of all of these s- separate plot threads that seem so far from each other to begin with in the first few issues. have ar- They already feel so much more connected now, and it's all going to come together in the end, and I'm sure it's going to be satisfying. And I can't wait to see uh, and experience that. So uh, what were your thoughts on the issue? Uh, well, uh, things are continuing to build uh, because, as you said, the the, the central conceit of this uh, danger of this uh, Danger Street series is taking all these first issue specials from the seventies with these ridiculously stu- you know f- you know crazy characters that went nowhere and, and all these series that were canceled and orchestrating one story one one dare I say interesting story about how they all intersect and uh, I quite. Uh, Tom King continues to impress me with his characterization in this issue, uh, with his use of dialogue in this issue, how he's actually creating a, a, a story where there are very believable connective tissues and narratives connecting all these characters together. Done a very good job. I love Lady Cop's interrogation of Travis Morgan. Travis Morgan wakes up. He was in that car accident last issue where he, so he ran into Lady Cop. Uh, Lady Cop has some idea what's going on. What, what Lady Cop's been able to put together, Lady Cop, through the evidence over the, over the last pre- previous uh, six uh, five issues, she knows that uh, this character, Atlas, was uh, killed with a sword, and she knows that in the, at the crime scene in the desert, there's this dead 14-year-old kid, Goodlooks, who's a member of the Danger Street, uh, Dingbats of Danger Street. There was even diamonds found on the crime scene, which were actually a result of, I think, of Metamorpho getting involved, and so diamonds were created. So she she's thinking maybe it was a, it was a diamond theft or th- gone wrong. Uh, Starman and Warlord uh, are, were on the lam. Warlord ends up in the hospital. Uh, Lady Cap can't figure out why Warlord would return to the crime scene to try to steal the body. Of course, the reason why Warlord did that is that they want to resurrect the kid, I think, to try to bring him back to life. Uh, Warlord wakes up in the hospital, interrogated by a lady cop. He's talking smart, but the fact of the matter is that Warlord and Starman are guilty of I mean, they're, they're, they're guilty of uh, negligent homicide at a minimum. There's no question about it. They orchestrated, I mean, what they did was bloody well criminal. They orchestrated and tried to attract Darkseid, uh, hoping to defeat him and then impress the Justice League for Justice League membership. It was atrocious what uh, Warlord and Starman would do. And, uh, but <laughs> that's sort of, you, you <laughs> that's what kind of makes it interesting. But instead of Darkseid showing up, Atlas does. And all this story flowed from that. We got the dingbats, we got the green team. More members of the green team, a number member, uh, a black kid by the name of Abdul. Uh, his uh, manhunter tries to assassinate him to kill him in this issue. Other members of the green team, Houston and Cecil, have already been killed. Commodore and C- Abdul are the only ones left. Commodore is setting up Abdul because he wants to be, he wants to survive. So he he blocks all of Abdul's access to his money. And so Abdul, at the end of this issue, uh 
tries to go into hiding and he and and this is where we finally meet the outsiders at the end of this issue uh and the outsiders consisting of uh, outsiders consisting of an eclectic group of very odd looking people consisting of uh, lizard johnny mighty mary harry larry and billy led by dr goody scary uh <laughs> none of the uh, the only person who's mentioned is mary but these characters are very eclectic i got these i got these names from wikipedia um they're not actually mentioned named they're not in named in the story yet other than mary mighty mary who looks like a very weird looking creature other than her beautiful face in any event all these things are coming together lady cops trying to piece it all together and there's there's an entertainment factor here I, and i can tell you that from because we review every issue uh what i give tom king credit for uh unlike i'm gonna say he uh, tom king is better than ed brison and matthew rosenberg at handling more than one character because I can actually remember enough from previous issues as to who's who and where this is going in a more in a more sensible manner than even Ed Brisson and Matthew Rosenberg are capable. Matthew Rosenberg has, uh, you know, he's he, he's I think he's hit and miss with handling large casts in, in The Man Who Stopped La- Joker, The Man Who Stopped Laughing. And uh, Ed Brisson is having uh, mixed results with Batman Incorporated as we just finished reviewing. But overall, I, I quite enjoy this. Yeah, I mean, they're, the cast of characters is slightly smaller, but uh, but you're right. Um, Tom just has a way of distilling down these characters really, really well. I mean, there's a reason the guys won multiple Eisners, right? Yes. Super talented, right? So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Gotham Academy Maps of Mystery, and this <coughs> excuse me, this collects a lot of recently reprinted uh, or recently published material for uh, Maps Maguchi, yeah. who is uh, a character from Gotham Academy, very, very beloved, probably the most beloved character of, of Gotham Academy. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, it reprints backup stories that were in Batman number 119 and 121. Also a story that was included in the 2022 uh, Saved by the Bell Rev anthology from DC. And then also uh, a Carl Kershaw story from Batman Black and White number four. So it's all reprinted material, but I'm glad that um, the DC did this because she, as I said, she's a beloved character. And a lot of times when you read those backups, uh, you know, just like we we're talking about with the, the uh, PKJ backup, it's such a small chunk of the story that it doesn't read as well as it does kind of all in one sitting. Cause it's not like these stories are, you know, big, long epics. It's not like if you collect those three backup stories, from those three issues of Batman, 119 through 121, it's the equivalent of reading three comics. No, it's the equivalent of reading one comic, right? Because if a comic is about, you know, 20 to 22 pages, and then the backup, the backup is three eight-pagers, that's 24 pages. So it's right about the same. So the first one is They Make Great Pets. It's written, drawn, and lettered by Carl Kershaw, who's one of the um, creators that worked on Gotham Academy. Colors are by John Rausch. Uh, and then, and that's a story that was in the, the Batman backups, as I said. And then the second story is the one that was in the, uh, the Bell Rev anthology. That one, just let me get to the credits here. Um, let me see if I can, uh, find the credits. Um, Becky Cloonan and Brendan Fletcher yeah, were the writers. Becky, yeah. Becky Cloonan and Brendan Fletcher were the writers on that one. And they are the ones that wrote 
the original uh, Gotham Academy run, and Carl Kershaw is the artist on that one, um, with uh, M. Sasiak on colors and Steve Wands on letters. So that's the, the whole original team uh, from Gotham Academy getting back together to uh, to do that. And then the black and white one is Carl Kershaw doing the story and art with Steve Wands on uh, letters. Obviously, there's no colors. It's Batman black and white. So, um, yeah, I enjoyed this. I I had read these stories. I read all these stories before, and I'd read them rather, rather recently. But I enjoyed them more this time, reading them all together in, in one sitting than I did when I read them previously. So, um, yeah. yeah, fantastic. Yeah, well, we we reviewed them. I remember we reviewed them in when they were in Batman. I, I, I mistakenly... I, I mistakenly tweeted that it was uh, that they were in Batman Urban Legends, uh, but uh, you're right; it was in Batman. And it's nice to see. It's nice to put the maps, uh, the, the maps of mystery, and in, in, into one compilation. It's uh, because I, I do think that probably you know this is this is a better format for it to maybe focus on maps, focus on Gotham Academy. I, I got to say, this is a little bit. Um, <sighs> Kind of a DC screw up. I mean, they they should have maybe done this better. Even calling up maps of mystery. I mean, it. Frankly, they should have had their own series or uh, maybe a mini series. But it's nice to see this together. So maybe it'll get more attention than it did. Sort of hidden in the back in, as a backup in various pages of Batman and other random printings. The problem with so many damn Batman comic books out there is that when you throw backups in random Batman comics, it, it's going to go missed because people there's just too many damn Batman comics to begin with. And that's the great irony. You think that you're going to get a lot of exposure if you put something in a Batman comic. Well, when there's too many Batman comics and sales are already uh, getting lower and lower. I mean, it's not um, its not always something that's going to be seen. And I think this is an example of that, of uh, you want something exposed and, you know, give it its own comic. So I'm glad Gotham Academy got that. Yeah, I, and I love the main cover, how it looks like an old school kind of young uh, reader novel, if you will. I, I just thought it was fantastic. It looks all distressed, what have you, so... Yeah, and, and, you know, they do at least call it Gotham Academy Maps of Mystery featuring Batman. So hopefully yeah. fans of, um, of Gotham Academy are going to know this is out there. And maybe that's why DC collected it all, right? Because it didn't get enough attention when it was in the in the books. Because like you said, it's not like they were promoting, hey, if you're a fan of, of Maps Maguchi, you need to pick up these issues of Batman. We know they don't have com- – comic companies don't have marketing departments anymore, so – kind of understandable in that, in that way. All right. Uh, sorry. My dogs went crazy right there. Somebody came to the door. Uh, but anyway, let's move on. Superman lost number three. This is from Christopher Priest on plot and script. Carlo Pagulian on plot and art. Jason Paz does the inks. Jeremy Cox on colors. Willie Schubert on letters. Starts off with Lois at her computer. And for some reason getting mad saying, damn it, Clark, I'm not your maid. Uh, she's working on an article. She gets mad. She's, makes a mess. And then, uh, next thing she's picking up dirty clothes saying, Clark, I'm not your maid and comes across a broken piece of technology and that white costume that we saw in the last few pages uh, of the last issue. So with that, we flash back to when Clark is in space and we get more context. It's actually, you know, for being a Christopher priest comic, which Christopher priest comics can be pretty dense and he can make references to things in sort of the fictional back history of the story he's telling, but he can also make references to real things that happen in history. So you're never quite sure. And so sometimes it requires some effort if you want to have full understanding of what 
priest is trying to do. He's another one whose stories read a lot better collected than they do as kind of a serial story. That being said, this particular issue, there's a kind of n nothing you need to know. He doesn't make any strange references or whatever. It's all in the moment of Clark trying to uh, to get back to earth, you know, and, and there's a lot of context. There's a lot of him talking to that piece of equipment that he uh, saw that was crushed uh, or that Lois saw rather that was crushed. Uh, that she found at the bottom of his closet. Uh, it's a PSK uh, personal survival kit that he got from the gentleman, uh, Victor that he met on the planet that he was on last issue. And it's sort of like a, a version of a mother box in a way it can give him all kinds of information about where he is, where things are in the universe, that sort of thing. And, uh, at the end of the issue, he gets frustrated and he breaks it. And, and then it's in the condition that we see it in, uh, in, in the story where, where Lois discovered it, which is strange that he kept, he held onto it if it was broken. Um, but it's Superman being Superman traveling, trying to get home. Uh, again, just being who he is, protect, out there protecting people that he can protect, different alien species. And more than anything so far, what has struck me about the series, other than Christopher Priest really distilling Superman down to who he is at his core, is the art by Carlo Pagulian. Like if this series exists just to showcase what Carlo Pagulian can do, putting Superman out in this cosmic setting, then I am perfectly fine with that because this art is amazing. Yeah. We get it's, it's uh, incredible. Yeah. We get an appearance by the space dolphins um, that most people, most DC fans, global fans will remember from that series uh, that can travel at um, speeds greater than the, the speed of light, which Superman kind of hitches along with it, with them for a little while. Um, because again, he, he's not fully powered and he's, trillions of light years from from earth and you have to set aside what pkj is doing right now with superman being so powerful that time and space kind of don't matter to him which i also love but the, you know this depowered superman or less powered superman and and i mean you could if you wanted to kind of have your own continuity in your head for how this could be well again maybe it's the fact that in the pkj action comic story he's fully powered up by the sun right so he can travel immense distances quickly here he's not. He's not fully powered. Um, he's not in range of a, a yellow sun uh, or a yellow star, and so he's not able to charge up. And um, and for that reason, he can't fly as fast. But he hitches a ride with these dolphins, and they actually came, come to find out, came looking for him because they have some offspring that are trapped um, because the dolphins were eating the life, the uh, the people that the inhabitants of this alien world. You know, not everybody's humanoid and the inhabitants of this world, they're sort of a hive mind, if you will. And they're sort of the intergalactic version of plankton. Um, and so the dolphins are going to eat the, those things, but, you know, because they're dolphins and that's what they do. Not realizing that, hey, these are this, this plankton, this intergalactic plankton or what have you, cosmic plankton is is sentient. It's more of its parts. And so they created this um, this defense system. And now some of the dolphins are trapped. So the dolphins that weren't trapped sensed that Superman was nearby. They went and rescued him. And so, again, Priest really showcasing who Superman is, looking for a diplomatic solution. Yes, I want to protect the dolphins, but yes, I want to make sure they don't eat the plankton as well. Um, and then he ends up getting the – so he rescues the dolphins. They fly off at you know uh, s speeds faster than the speed of light, taking – uh, but accidentally leaving Superman behind, but yet taking his personal survival kit 
other than the little mother box type device with them. And that's out of frustration where, uh, where Superman breaks a device. So yeah, he, he traveled a long way really, really quickly with these dolphins and, you know, was trying to get to a, a place where he could communicate with them better, you know, tell them, Hey, I need you to take me to earth. Um, so he can actually get home in a, a reasonable amount of time for, in his, for as much time as has passed for him, he's been gone a year already. And so, you know, he's thinking that it's been a year for Lois as well, and she must be freaking out. So, again, the story is amazing. Um, the art is just beyond anything I've seen in a really long time in a Superman comic. I mean, it's just stunning. It's so gorgeous. And I, I'm a big fan of this white Superman costume. I never thought that would um, But it's just amazing. The, the line work is amazing. And, and big shout-out to Jeremy Cox as well, the color artist especially in the, some of these cosmic scenes with the, with the dolphins, there's lots of blues and pinks and purples. It just, it, 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 it's just beautiful. It's so fantastic to look at. I was just blown away page after page. So uh, what were your thoughts? Uh, I, I share your sentiment with regarding your, your comments regarding the art. Uh, Pagulin is just amazing. I mean, he's just, he's just, the art is truly fantastic. The colors pop off the page. It's really, really good. And this is a very straightforward Superman story. Uh, my fear is, though, because I have to tell you, I just, I really did, as beautiful as I, I found this, uh, uh, this issue, it was just beautiful to look at. I found it really boring. Um, yet I could, I could understand, I could understand Superman doing what he did. And I can understand Christopher Priest wanting to say, you know, this is going to be 10 issues long. And if I imagine every issue, we're going to get another reason why Superman is so spectacular and why he's such a great person and why, despite all, despite uh, all his bout of dealing with this loneliness and the solitude and the space, he's still going to find a way to do the right thing. And that's good. I just hope his adventures get a lot more adventurous than this. I'm, this was, I was bored silly from this. Um, I, now don't get me wrong. I guess space dolphins, it was, it was kind of a nice feel good issue. I hope this is the last feel good one we get, uh, to be quite blunt. I, I would, you know, I want more action. I want more adventure. I want more spectacularness. I just want, I want much more drama. I want, I want some more. I want some destruction. I want spaceships. I want other characters, uh, because, uh, this is something where we got, we got a lot of issues left here. And if, if honestly, I'll be, I, I don't, uh, visually, this is fantastic, uh, but I, I, I want I want the story to be ramped up, and I'm willing to be patient. This is only the third issue, but I, I'm really you know I'd like to see a little bit more here. Already, you can see the pattern of the storytelling. You can you because you you can see right at the beginning, you know, Lois comes across, you know, different different things that Superman has his costume. He's either she's probably going to discover other things that he's not talking about because he's clearly psychologically traumatized. He's clearly psychologically impacted by his 20 years being away from earth. And, uh, very clearly um, throughout the narrative, I'd like to see how some sign of how Lois helped Superman through it. How Lois, you know, what does Lois discover? I mean, she's an investigative reporter. If she senses something wrong with her husband, is she as good at getting to understand her husband as she is as getting to the bottom of a story? Uh, 
can she help her husband just like she can help humanity by winning a Pulitzer? You know, I mean, I, I want to see Lois step up to the plate to do something to help her husband here overcome whatever it is he experienced uh, while dealing with 20 years of solitude, if that's what it was. Because if we're just going to get issue after issue of Superman floating in space, no matter how fantastic the visuals are, I'm going to be bored silly. So this story has a tremendous amount of potential. I, it still does. I like this issue. I love the art. I'm hoping the story picks up and fingers crossed because I, I think it has a lot of potential to be, this has a potential to be uh, an evergreen if it's written right. And Christopher Priest has never written anything where I can look back on and say it's a must read. Maybe this, maybe this will be the first one by the time we get to issue 10. That's funny you mentioned evergreen because I kind of feel like it is already with only, only three issues. I, I get what you're saying in terms of Hey, I want action. I want to, you know, this awesome, whatever. I, I think this is not that. I, I think this is more of an emotional Superman story where it's going to lean into who, you know, who he is, his values, his love for Lois. I mean, I could be wrong, but this doesn't come across to me as some big Superman epic where, you know, he's fighting giant monsters and what have you. If you want that, go read War World. Uh, this to me feels like it's something that's going to be more emotional with fantastic art. I, I could be wrong. Um, yeah. But we haven't gotten a lot of that other than the scene with the kind of wormhole device, the singularity engine, there hasn't been any of that kind of big blockbuster summer popcorn flick kind of action in this story. Not so far, um, but I don't know, maybe it's coming. Who knows? I guess we'll have to yeah. wait and see. Uh, okay. Up next we have spirit world. Number one, this is written by Alyssa Wong. Art is by Hanning. Sebastian Cheng does colors. Janice Chang on letters. Uh, it picks right up where the uh, the We Are Legends DC one shot that collected a bunch of stories about uh, characters of Asian descent from DC, including Xanth Zhao here. She's the, the main character. She's dead, supposedly. And it's her job to kind of help spirits that have uh, newly been released from their mortal coil to uh, be escorted to the spirit world. Thus the name of the title spirit world. But uh, in the course of the, the story that we had, um, I can't remember what it was in originally, but it was, uh, I think it might've been. Uh, Lazarus planet, Adam. dark fate. Lazarus planet, yeah. dark fate. Yeah. Yeah. The Lazarus planet one shot where um, the Cassandra Kane Batgirl got pulled into the spirit world and Zant's Zhao got stuck in in the regular world. Um, so that's, you probably need to read that. I mean, I wouldn't say 100%, but if you read that, you'll know kind of what's going on in this story. And I'm finding um, Xanthi to be a very interesting character. I like her look. I like the um, kind of voice that uh, Alyssa Wong gives her. It's great seeing Cassandra Kane. It's great seeing John Constantine. So uh, I'm enjoying this so far as much as I'm not a big uh, magic you know, DC fan. Uh, I'm just not a fan of the, the magic corner of the DC universe, but that's all we're getting this year. So uh, between this and the nightmare stuff that, uh, that Joshua Williamson has coming up. So I guess I better learn to love it, but this is quality. This is a technically a very good comic. The art is great. Colors are great. Um, and again, the voice of, of Xanthi is very interesting. So I enjoy this. What do you think? I, I, I sort of have mixed feelings about it, but I, I think it has potential to introduce a new kind of understanding and a, and a different spin on the mythology or the 
or the understanding of death in the afterlife in the DC universe. And so it's interesting in that regard. And I, I thought it was, it was a little wonky. Uh, I thought at first regarding, uh, I, it, it, I had a, I had to read it a couple of times to get a handle on, on exactly, you know, I, I, let's put it this way. I, I had to, I actually had to read the advertisement to understand the basics of, of what was going on. Uh, because literally in the advertisement, it says that uh, meet Xanthi Zhou, a Chinese, a Chinese hero. Uh, my ignorance, I didn't know she was Chinese in the narrative. Uh, with the ability to travel in and out of the spirit world, the realm of the dead. And she's got a, she's got a super, or their superpower. And again, it's there because uh, that's her pronoun. Uh, so there's different parts of the narrative that might be confusing to those who don't realize that you refer to her as them and they. So her slash their superpower is based on the East Asian custom of burning joss paper at grave sites to send resource to send resources to ancestors in the spirit world, which will come in handy when Xanthi teams up with John Constantine. Uh, that was not clear to me when on my initial read. It became more clear to me uh, or. Uh, as I read the narrative, certainly it didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't particularly clear in the first, in the opening, our introduction to the character in Lazarus Planet Dark Fate. It's become more clear here. Uh, uh, so writer Alyssa yeah, Wong. There's a character Popo. There's a character Popo in, in this issue that explains that, yeah, when they burn stuff, then it manifests itself in the spirit world. So. Yeah, and uh, but but even there, I got a lot of questions, and then there was even a joke saying that money's worthless in the spirit world because everybody, so many people are burned money. Well, yeah. I don't know about that. How many people actually burn money? Not too many people. Furthermore, why would any amount of money be worth something in the spirit world? You're dead, and why would people, when they're dead, go to the spirit world anyway? It doesn't make any sense. So I got a lot of questions in terms of the whole mythology of the spirit world anyway. And then the spirit world, people in the spirit world somehow like to eat the living. So when they're in the spirit world, when Cassandra Cain gets there, the collective, this, the collective, uh, this collective group of tortured souls drag her in to the spirit world. And because she's living, anything living in the spirit world attracts all these dead spirits that want to devour them. And the only reason, uh, this mother Popo, she seems to have some ability. She creates some beads that she gives Bowen and Xanthi to wear to have them be able to resist this compulsion to to do that. So I still have some questions as in terms of exactly what the power set is. But I have to say that uh, artist Henning is is very very good. I'm I'm interested in this. And, and I think it's good for the DC universe. Just like uh, the Monkey King was good, it took a while for Monkey King to grow on me. And, and I think maybe you too a little bit at the beginning. But it grew, he grew into his own character. And this uh, Xanthi is a very, uh, they is a very interesting character. And uh, you know what? It's going to educate me and get me used to maybe using pronouns, which I probably have to in this new day and age. And I'm all for it. I mean, it's, 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 I think there's a lot of interesting things here. Her, her power set, it's going to be interesting to see what Elisa Wong does with the character moving forward. I like the use of Cassandra Kane. It gives her something to do outside the Bat family because she's kind of a redundancy there and she's never been utilized to her full potential. So I'm really curious to see what, what happens here. And, uh, and, and, uh, John Constantine and 
Xanthi have found a gateway in our world into the spirit world to rescue Cassandra Cain. And with Mother Popo and this Bowen character there, I'm actually curious to see what's uh, ultimately going to happen. This issue ends with Xanthi running into her mother uh, in in our world, which is quite interesting because I, I'm not sure exactly what the history of, of, of Xanthi is and what her relationship was like with her mother because she's essentially an orphan herself. And Cassandra Cain is also an orphan, so she's got something in common with Cassandra Cain. So I'm really curious to see what uh, writer Alyssa Wong does with this. And uh, I think Henning, as an artist, does a, does a pretty good job conveying the story itself. So, uh, yeah, I'm... I'm I, I, this pleasantly surprised me because I was looking more forward to City Boy, and I'm, uh, and I, and maybe I still am. But uh, this, this impressed me. This was better than I thought it was going to be. Straight up. Yeah, uh, I don't think I said enough about how good the art was. Yeah, there's a real human quality, a softness to the art, but a little bit of manga influence with kind of the larger eyes and a lot of emotion in the face. So, um, yeah, great job. Uh, all right. Up next, we have the final issue of Stargirl and the Lost Children. It's written by Jeff Johns. Art is by Todd Nock. Matt Herms is the colorist, and Rob Lee does the letters. What do you think of this? Uh, well, uh, once again, Todd Nock. Uh, Todd Nock. Nock. Sorry, continues to impress. I mean, everything from the cover here is just incredible. There's so many. Uh, I mean, I think there's been, I get the, I'm perceiving, I seem to think that there's been some delays on this title, but but maybe I'm wrong on that. But if there hasn't been any delays, kudos to, to artist Todd Nock, because this is, uh, the art here is incredible. The number of double page spreads here is extremely impressive. And once again, all these characters, I mean, they're just, uh, I mean, uh, what's, it's very clear, especially with with Stargirl and the Lost Children here, and DC is on a family kick. Where we've got we've got the Batman family, Green Arrow family lately. We got the Fat Flash family, uh, and of course we've already had the Green Lantern Corps, and uh, we got the Blue Beetles expanding into like the Power Rangers of the DC universe. And now we've got we've got this whole influx now of these Lost Children, who at the end of this issue they managed to escape Orphan Island. They, they escape the child minder and the our man, the our man from the future ends up, uh, it's revealed that he was actually under the influence of an adult uh, quirky Baxter who shows up <laughs> and the children are ultimately sent to the present. So the lost children are not sent back to their, to their 1940s time periods. They're actually sent back to present day uh, Earth designate zero or present day Earth, which is very interesting because now, now we literally have, we've got all this fodder for brand new younger superhero groups in the DC universe. And so now we can have a genuine new membership for a, a new young justice or a new young superhero group because we got all these, we got all these new members uh, for the DC universe, genuine legacy characters moving forward. And they, you know, they look amazing. The only character that doesn't make it back is the character Wing, who ends up having to go back to the 1940s to give his life to in order to defeat the, um, in order to defeat a villain whose name I I forget off the top of my head. But in in any event, there's uh, this is a story. Uh, there's 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 uh, tragedy here. There's betrayal. There's sacrifice. And all, you know, just beautifully rendered. I, I think it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, it, it's very, it's obvious that the six issues 
the, the intent of the six issues, this wasn't a particularly complicated plot. This was really just Stargirl and, and the Red Arrow and Eco go, uh, uh, going back, you know, finding Orphan Island and rescuing the lost children and bringing them to the present time period so that now we have all these young kids that can now make up, uh, you know, basically be new heroes so that the DC universe can have a new generation of heroes. And oddly enough, it doesn't feel forced. You know, I, when I compare this to Marvel now, uh, the much uh, controversial Marvel uh, period of 2015, I think it was, where they introduced all these younger generational legacy characters that that was kind of controversial and had mixed results somehow i think jeff johns has managed to introduce a whole influx of brand new characters here these lost children in a way that actually feels more organic than what marvel did with uh, Mar marvel uh, uh now and so but anyways i'm impressed uh, there's uh, some character moments with a young corky baxter disappointed with his older self because it ends up that his uh, a corrupt version of an older corky baxter ended up being the one that corrupted the mind of our man who and who also manipulated Childminder to try to keep all these kids trapped on Orphan Island. But ultimately, uh, you know, Judy, Gar uh, Judy uh, Garrick uh, steals the computer brain of Our Man and they it's being manipulated. So they fix that, put it back into Our Man. They end up defeating <laughs> Corky Baxter. And, uh, you know, the, they end up winning the day. And the, the sacrifice that Wing makes at the end, he, deciding to go back because he has to give his life to save the universe, he does that. Corky Baxter feels guilty at the end. And there's a hint at the end with, uh, you know, Judy. It shows Judy saying dad in the background. And, and Judy and Jay Garrick, you can see his side profile as he looks. Jay Garrick never remembered that he had a daughter. And we now know that Jeremy Adams, who was taken off the Flash, Wally West Flash, is going to be writing that uh, Jay Garrick Flash series. And this is will be a nice segue into that that Flash series whenever it, it appears, hopefully in the next six months. I'm not sure when that advertisement was, but... Uh, uh, you couldn't have a better you couldn't have a better writer assigned to a Jay Garrick uh, flash story than uh, than Jeremy Adams coming hot off the presses of uh, his run on Wally West, which will end in the next uh, few months. So I thought this was a fitting end. I thought it, it wasn't particularly overly complicated. It didn't need to be. It did the job that it needed to do. Introduce some more characters into the DC universe that have a lot of potential for other writers moving forward. So what do you think? Yeah, I enjoyed it. It ended up being. Like you said, a little more simplistic than I, you know, originally thought. Um, yeah, lots of new characters in present day. It's explained that they couldn't be taken back to their own time, uh, or or taken back to the moment they disappeared from the timeline because then it would cause all sorts of uh, contradictions in in time and paradoxes and what have you. But they're back, and yeah, Jay Garrick's still still alive. So now he gets introduced to his daughter. We get the Jeremy Adams series, as you mentioned. So. Yeah, pretty interesting. And what what I found most interesting, you know, because it is a great moment when Corky Baxter shows up um, and is kind of the big bad and his younger self there. And, you know, that confrontation, that uh, conversation he has, interaction he has with his, his younger self. And it all really comes down to the fact that Corky doesn't have enough faith in the heroism of these young kids, Wing in particular, right? Probably because... Corky is so self-involved. He's such a narcissistic character. He's so young and it, that's okay. You know, it's okay. Like if you, you talk to a three-year-old or a four-year-old or five-year-old, they're inherently narcissistic. Their world revolves around themselves because that's the only thing they know. 
You know, they may have some empathy, but they're not looking, they're not thinking, well, what's it like to walk in the shoes of somebody else? Like, that's just not where you're at when you're that age. Um, And so I think Corky being that age, he can't understand that given the opportunity, Wing is going to go and sacrifice himself to take out the Nebula Man and save the universe, save the world, save the galaxy, save the multiverse, whatever, however you want to put it. Um, but given the opportunity, Wing does exactly that. Wing sacrifices himself. Um, and then Corky, you know, it's a learning experience him. It's a gr- growth experience. And it's a it's a great scene written by Jeff Johns where Rip Hunter is trying to explain to Corky, hey, yeah, you, you were, you know, technically the villain of this uh, adventure, but you learned. You're no longer going to be that person. You, you have to take this as a learning experience. So, you know, whether he will or not, remains to be seen. I, I still find Corky to be somewhat of an annoying character. Um, but, but here we are with a potential for growth for him. So I thought that was handled really, really well. And yeah, like yourself, I'm really looking forward to the, um, the Jeremy Adams flash run um, flash series with, uh, with Jay and Judy. We'll see how that all comes together. I'm, I'm really, really excited for that. Uh, and yeah, the Todd knock art here is fantastic as always. So many characters, and Todd uh, doesn't miss a beat. Really bright colors as well. I thought the color work from uh, Matt Herms was done uh, really superbly. Very very primary colors. And as uh, I've said many times, primary color gives you that real classic superhero feel. Yeah. So, And we should also mention a final note that uh, there's two teams that are conferred at the end of this. One we already know of, of course, that's the Justice Society of America. And the other one that has also been revitalized in the present is the Seven Soldiers of Victory. Uh, so we may expect to see some more of them in the in the year that follows in this dawn of the DCU. It, it's just mentioned here at the end, so maybe we'll see some more of those characters that made up that Seven Soldiers of Victory, or some new characters that make up their membership. So, yeah, we'll see. Uh, all right, up next, Wildcats number seven. This is written by Matthew Rosenberg, Danny Kim, and Christian Ducey are the artists. Elmer Santos and Tony Avina on colors, Farron Delgado on letters. Um. I feel I feel a little bit like this was very much a talking heads issue. We saw at the end of the last issue that Grifter Cole Cash took out Void, and apparently that has thrown him tumbling and traveling through the multiverse, different worlds, different realities of the DCU. I gotta I gotta admit that it's getting a little cliched, right? Like ever since uh, Scott Snyder did what he did in in Dark Knight's Death Metal, and he talked about it. I heard him say so many times at so many different conventions or interviews where it's like, think of the DC universe as a goldfish bowl. And now we've dumped that goldfish bowl into the ocean. And, you know, there's an infinite number of realities, infinite uh, number of infinities, if you will. Uh, it's no longer just 52 earths or what have you. And so all of a sudden every writer wants to take their character and just put them world through world, through world, through world, or send them traveling through different mythological worlds. It's, it's kind of not, that interesting anymore to be honest with you um seeing these different of of characters was fun at at first but now it's gotten sort of old and we saw a ton of it in um in the lead up to uh to infinite crisis or uh what was it dark crisis dark crisis on infinite earth we saw a ton of it um in infinite frontier so yeah it doesn't really interest me what interests me more is the political aspect of the story, which I feel like is being doled out very slowly um, because a lot of people don't realize this, maybe because it was a Jim Lee creation um, and the art was sort of the priority 
early on in those Wildcats issues. But Wildcats inherently, like by, by concept, is a very political book with these different organizations or, or alien races that have been at war for a long time. Um, the Daemonites and the Kebrium or however you pronounce it, you know, hiding out on Earth and, and being at war for, for centuries, if not thousands of years. Um, and so there's a lot of secrecy, a lot of kind of behind the scenes are hiding out on Earth and what have you. So there's a big political aspect to it. And that is interesting to me. But being that this is coming so slow, uh, it, it's hard to kind of wrap my head around it and understand where we're at in this current version of, of Wildcats. So I'm still on board. Um, I'm, I still give Matthew Rosenberg, the writer, a lot of credit for the voices that he gives these Wildcats characters. It both feels fresh, but yet they seem recognizable in terms of their characterization and personality for who they were back in the day. And that's a very tough balance to strike. And he does a fantastic job. Um, so, you know, I am still interested. This is still a good story. I just wish it would move along a little a little faster, you know. Um, the art is fantastic in this issue. You, it's been Steven Segovia uh, for the art on on most of them, but we have two artists here. I didn't even really realize it was two artists. So, you know, Danny Kim and Christian Doucet do a good job of melding their styles together really, really well. Um, and it, it, it's a fun book, but like I said, a bit of a talking heads issue. I'm ready for it to move along a, a little quicker. So what were your thoughts? Uh, I I read this issue three times again. And uh, you know what? I uh, the, the way that I, I miss certain things when we reviewed Green Lantern. <laughs> so, and I, I miss things when I – with Batman in, in Incorporated and I – Clearly, I because I'm I'm very confused in this issue, and I, I read this one three times too, and I'm I don't understand what Cole's doing. Void he he killed Void because I we thought Void was the bad person, but Void sent him throughout the universe, and he's traveling throughout different multiverses here, and he ends up in Salvation at the beginning where he he's killed by Jonah Hex, and then Cole the gr Grifter is being sent through different multiverses, different Earths where he where he apparently he he helps people and then he ends up on an earth where his brother is still alive and meanwhile uh I, I, it's revealed that the void apparently apparently when void and grifter have been working together in the past where they would where pe if people if people wanted to disappear what void would do would send grifter into another earth in the multiverse and kill kill that person that they were trying to protect and bring that person's corpse back into our universe and replace the, and make that, make it look like that person was dead so that, that they could protect the person here. So if you wanted to fake your own death, that's what void and grifter were doing. Um, why then grifter killed void last issue? I'm not really sure. I'm not somebody I thought was trying to take over wild, the wildcats. I thought that was Marlo, but maybe it isn't. Now I'm not sure. I, I I don't I don't really understand uh, exactly what's going on. I don't know why Grifter needs to be in other parts on other Earths. I he's meeting his brother and then he's having an adventure on another Earth. Why? What does this have to do with the main narrative? I thought we were. I'm not even. I have no idea now. Is Marlowe corrupt and trying to what? I he already controls the Wildcats, so 
I, I've, I've completely lost the narrative. Like, what is actually going on here? I just don't know. And I, um, I, I, I don't know where this is going. And um, so I'll just fall on my sword and say, I, I don't get it. I've read it three times. I still don't understand what's going on. It's lost any emotional gravitas for me. The, the, there should be an emotional moment with Grifter meeting his brother in another universe, his brother who died. Uh, but in this universe, it was Cole who died and as opposed to his brother. But I just, it, it has none because they're, he's just jumped from universe to universe. And I don't really understand how it has anything to do with the main narrative itself. Uh, I'm not sure if is Void dead. If Void was dead, why did Void send him on into different Earths? I, I don't really know. I wish I could understand exactly what's what what's going on. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm lost. I I'm lost. I I don't know what Matthew Rosenberg's trying to say or do here. We're now seven issues in, and I I'm completely lost. And I I don't. I've lost, I've lost this narrative and I've got no desire to go and read the previous seven issues because I don't think it's going to help. So um, I, I don't know. I, he's going to have to – Matthew Rosenberg does not. And this is this – is, I found this issue was worse than this issue's than – than last week's uh, hit Rosenberg's uh, Joker, The Man Who Can't Stop Laughing. Uh, that uh, he's just – He's losing me on these narratives. He he has to reel this in. He's got to focus on clarity more for me, or maybe it's just his writing that I just I just can't get a handle on it. I but this was just a really big miss for me. The art's fine, and uh, one one complaint I want to have is just on Caitlin Fairchild. Like she seems to grow old. I don't know. If she she's young. She's a young kid, and then she when she powers up, she looks like an adult. Uh, you know, I remember when Caitlin Fairchild was leader of Gen 13, she was the team's strongest leader. She was the smartest leader. And the way she's portrayed here is just insulting. She's like a little, she's like an annoying kid brat. And I, I don't even know what purpose she serves, but I'm, I'm really starting to dislike this version of the Wildcats because this team isn't gelling. And it, it, it seems everything's haphazard and they, they, it seems completely unfocused. This doesn't seem like a team effort. No one knows. None of the team members know what the other team members are doing. They're always infighting. And then they're always betraying each other. Then they're not betraying each other. Then it's revealed that, oh, well, they're all, it was all a, a ruse. And they're, they're getting along. And then they're doing this because they know Marlo's corrupt. And, and now all of a sudden, Void is dead. But is she dead? And then she sends Cole into the... I don't know. It's a mess. And I, I don't know. Like I'll just stop talking now. But this isn't working for me. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, that's the, I mean, that's kind of the point. It's what I was talking about being a very political book. Uh, and again, Wildcats was a political book back in the day. Yeah. hundred percent amp is up to something. Marlo's up to something that's been clear from the beginning. The, the overtones have been there and that's why you have fractures within the team. Cause you have people that are, maybe they're on the inside. Maybe they understand what Marlo's doing or they just follow him out of blind loyalty. And then you have the Wildcats themselves who are kind of wise to the fact that he's planning something nefarious and are going behind his back to, to stop him. And it seems like Void kind of flipped sides and was willing to work with him, and that's why Grifter took her out. Why he's jumping through time? Well, that's the central mystery. That's what's mentioned multiple times in, in this issue by Cole himself and by the, the rest of the Wildcats when they view the footage. They don't know why Void sent him like, why did Void do what she did? Why did she send him tumbling through the multiverse? Cole doesn't know. 
and no, and the Wildcats don't know, and we as readers don't know. The only one that does know is Void, and we're going to get that answer to that eventually. But in the meantime, what is Marlowe up to? Why is he, you know, sneaking around and lying and going behind the backs of the other Wildcats? Well, again, that's the point of the story. That's what we're trying to find out. That's what the Wildcats themselves are trying to find out covertly so that they don't kind of uh, notify or, or they don't get caught sneaking around behind Marlowe's back. That, I mean, that's the point. It's, again, it's a very political book. I, I can understand why it, it might confuse some people or, or it's not real clear. But yeah, this isn't, uh, this isn't uh, the Wildcats cartoon. This isn't, you know, just a, a traditional superhero team book. This is a, a political book. It's very, I don't want to say convoluted, but I'll say it's, it's complicated. It's a, it's a tough narrative to follow. I'll say it's convoluted. <laughs> yeah, I know you will. You're not, you're not enjoying it. I'm, I'm enjoying it immensely. And I wasn't a big fan of Wildcats back in the day um, when it first launched, mo- mostly because of the, the delays. But yeah, it's clear that Matthew Rosenberg is a huge Wildcats fan. He has all the history, all the knowledge of it in his head. And he's, he's crafting something here that's kind of a step above what Wildcats was in the back in the day, as it were. So, uh, all right, moving on. Sandman Universe, Nightmare Country. We're up to issue number two of this. It's written by James Tynan. Patricio Del Pesce is the artist. Simon Bolin on letters. Uh, give us your thoughts on this one. Well, uh, this was, uh, I think this is, you know, James Tynan did a, I, I thought his first arc of uh, The Glass House was uh, well done. I thought it, he established a new mythology for the Corinthian. And uh, the new mythology is that this new character, this this female character named Madison Flynn is actually now linked to the Corinthian where the Corinthian cannot take a life or commit any act of violence without Madison Flynn's consent. And uh, this particular issue or continues the story of this, this individual by the name of Max, who is an employee of this of this profit corporation run by this uh, individual named Maury profit who has visions of Armageddon and, uh, Max is, becomes involved where he, he goes to this party and you're only invited to this party if you're, if you're sort of part of the, the corporate group. And the corporate group is very evil here. It's a very, it's very sort of tropey in that corporations are bad and very evil. And it's almost like this Maury, this prophet, Maury prophet guy is like he's the devil. And Max ends up falling in love with this character, with this purple hair, with this disgusting skin. She looks extremely... Uh, I don't know why he falls in love with essentially a rotting corpse, really. But but she's not. I don't know if she's not rotting, but she's got these blisters on her body. She's got purple hair, and this character he falls in love with her because apparently they've he you know he's had a really deep conversation with her. <laughs> Being a little bit tongue in cheek here, but he he falls in love with her, and it's ultimately revealed that this character was actually Madison Flynn's old roommate who was actually who was who who went missing uh, in the in the first story arc of this story, and so we never knew what happened with Madison Flynn's old roommate. We know that Madison Flynn ended up dying and then becoming linked to the Corinthian, uh, such as so such that the Corinthian can't do any violence or kill anybody without Madison Flynn's consent. But what happened to Mad- Madison Flynn's roommate? It would appear that she's now this glorified shall we say, lady of the night, this stripper slash hooker who works for this corporation, who apparently now is in love with this Max character. And uh, meanwhile, the Corinthian gets 
almost manipulated, psychologically manipulated by desire. At least I believe it's desire who is trying, who's trying to pull Corinthian to, uh, to its side by telling Corinthian, how would you like to get your old powers back? How would you like to be in control of your life again? You know, so you're not essentially beholden to Madison Flynn's consent to whatever it is you want to do. And essentially, that's what uh, that's what happens to the Corinthian at the end here. And there's this is definitely in a you know the Corinthian is a is an LGBTQ character, and uh, he's tempted by uh, through uh, he, he's tempted through by desire uh, by looking you know being in a in a sort of erotic nightclub with that um, like caters to his particular sexual proclivities and. And exactly what what desires you know what desire wants from Corinthian is unclear. Uh, I'm not really I'm not entirely clear where this is going, but it's clear that this prophet character, this leader of this corporation, is utilizing Max and is utilizing things because he has a vision of Armageddon and and this and sure that's linked with desires. Uh, machinations of wanting to manipulate the Corinthian and overcome the influence of the Sandman and Madison Flynn. So I'm really curious to see where this is going. Very clearly, James Tanian has a plan. There's some linkages here to the early, the first story arc. And so if you're, if you're not on board, if you haven't been reading previous issues, you're probably going to be completely lost with this issue. But if you've been on board from the beginning, this probably will be an issue that captivates you. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, for not being a horror fan, that's what Tynan does best. Um, and it's, it's kind of, he's given up all his superhero comics to write horror and was mainly focused on creator-owned stuff. Um, obviously, he still did the uh, Nice House on the Lake at DC, but uh, he was offered this, Sandman Country, and being a Neil Gaiman property, he, he couldn't turn it down. So it's like the one licensed book he's still doing. And it's fantastic. It shows his mastery of, of horror I wouldn't say this is super suspenseful or, uh, or you know, really scary or terrifying or anything, but it sure is creepy. Um, and the way that this this second volume, Nightmare Country Glass Houses, is uh, is tying in to the first volume with Madison's uh, Madison Flynn's roommate, as Rocky mentioned, who you know disappeared before we even got a chance to to really see her or meet her. In the first volume, you know, her showing up here. Yeah, real interesting way to tie it in. Obviously, the Corinthian is in both. Madison Flynn, you know, reincarnated as a kitten or a cat here uh, is in both. Don't know where this is going, but uh, it, it definitely feels like it fits within the Sandman universe. I think that is its, uh, its probably best attribute, the fact that it feels so right at home, yet uh, in the in the Sandman corner of the DCU, and yet it feels so fresh with these new characters. So, Tynan clearly is a fan of of Sandman, the Sandman universe within DC, and uh, he's crafting something that's interesting and um, and compelling that fits in seamlessly with that uh, with that corner of the DCU. So, uh, all right, up next, head over to a, yet a different corner of the DCU, the Sean Gordon Murphy verse. White Knight presents Generation Joker. This is written by Katana Collins and Clay McCormick, probably with some input from Sean Murphy. Uh, Mirka Andolfo is the artist. Alejandro Sanchez does colors. Uh, I'm pulling all that from the cover, so I'm not exactly sure how everyone is credited inside because for some reason our press preview doesn't have the uh, the credits. But um, 
I know Katana Collins uh, has written some Sean Gordon Murphy verse material previously. Uh, I think she did the Harley Quinn series along with Sean Gordon Murphy, uh, which was very, very good. And then Clay McCormick was sort of the editor, um, sounding board, what have you, when Sean Gordon Murphy, right when he launched the very first uh, title in this part of the DC multiverse, uh, Batman White Knight. And then eventually Sean was able to, because early on and by his own admission, Sean's like, man, I, I wanted to be the only one that wrote stories because I had a specific vision. He's been able to let go of the reins a little bit. He, he's allowed Katana. He's allowed Clay. Clay wrote the uh, the two-part uh, Red Hood story that we got uh, previously. And then, yeah, fantastic Mirka Andolfo art and great colors by Alejandro Sanchez. So um, this that being said, this is a, a – a good book. It's technically well put together. Perhaps it's just because it focuses on Jack Napier and his kids that I find it to be probably the least interesting white knight property that uh, I've read. Um, not, not, again, not because it's not good, uh, not because it's not great art or well paced and good dialogue, but just, I don't have much interest in Jack Napier or his kids. So that's kind of on me. Um, a bit of Bruce, we get a little bit of, of Harley and then, even um, Red Hood shows up at the end and his, I can't remember what his, his new Robin sidekick's name is. Um, Ga- Gao or something or Gone? Oh, yeah. Gone? <laughs> yeah, Gan? that sounds right. G-O-N, G-O-N or Gone, yeah. something like that. Gone. Yeah. Um, so yeah, anyway, that, that's on me um, that I, I just, I don't have much interest in Jack Napier. So, uh, but yeah, high quality, good art, good covers, good colors. So, um, yeah, I mean, maybe you enjoyed it more than me. What'd you think? Uh, well, I think I did enjoy it more than you. I I actually like that this is a this is the Joker is an artificial intelligence program. This is the Joker's AI program who he steals the Batmobile and he takes his kid on his two kids Jackie and Bryce on a road trip to tell them about his past so that they can learn something about their father, other than the fact that he was just a psychopath named Joker. And so uh, shenanigans ensue. That's what happens. And so I mean. Uh, you know, uh, Harley Quinn has got some fears and so does Bruce Wayne. Uh, and they're a little bit worried about Jackie because they, they're, they're worried that maybe Jackie one day is going to turn in and ha- and is going to turn into her father, the darker side of her father. We know what happened to Jack Napier. He became the Joker. They're, they're concerned that maybe Jackie's going to turn into maybe her own little Joker as she gets older. And, and so I, I think that the fear here is that, well, what's going to, uh, you know, uh, Harley grounds Jackie and ends up Jackie is the one that seems to get in trouble a lot. And her brother Bryce is uh, really into computers as well. And he seems to, uh, he seems to be a little bit more uh, of an introspective young, young lad. And, but he wants to, he wants to get to know his dad and they, they wish that they knew more about their father. And lo and behold, uh, Jackie of course has access to the AI program uh, following the events from the uh, from the previous series, and so they access uh, the AI program, and it ends up that the uh, the Joker or Jack Napier tells them that as an AI program, he's the program's going to disintegrate in one week, and so he's only got one week to spend as an AI program, as a construct, as a hologram construct, to tell his children, Jackie and Bryce, 
aspects about his life. And if things things don't go particularly well, because by the end of the issue, while they go on this road trip, you know, uh, the Joker, Jack Napier, leaves a message for Harley telling where he, telling them where he's gone. And um, he wants to show the kids where he first met his mom, et cetera, et cetera. And so ultimately, that's what Jack does. Joker takes the kids to go there. and But they, they end up, we learn something about the Joker's past. And we learn that, in fact, the Joker... Uh, we learned that, in fact, the Joker at some point uh, actually ended up uh, killing the killing the uh, uh, Killer Croc, Penguin, Scarecrow, and Two Face, who are known as Dragon Man, Birdman, Nightmare Man, and Split Man. And they all and also the Joker at one point hired Azrael to murder Arnold Wesker, who was the ventriloquist. And it's the ventriloquist's daughter that wants to get revenge on the Joker at the end. But because the Joker is just a hologram, the ventriloquist's daughter will take it out by killing Jackie and Bryce. Meanwhile, what's uh, perhaps more interesting to Harley and Poison Ivy fans is that Harley ends up being, she she goes to follow the Joker uh, uh tries to find her kids and she ends up being followed by Neo Joker and Neo Joker is with the this version of Poison Ivy. So we're getting the we're getting the White Knight version of uh I guess you could say the quasi Harley Quinn, the Neo Joker and Poison Ivy in this issue as well. So it's going to be interesting to see what role they play in this narrative. So I thought this was a really good opening issue and I'm I'm impressed. If I didn't know better, I think Katana Collins and uh, McCormack, I think they're 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 accessing their their inner um, Sean Gordon Murphy very well. So I was impressed with it. Well, if I'm not mistaken, Katana Collins is Sean Gordon Murphy's girlfriend. So fair enough, um, I, gu- I guess. <laughs> so yeah, she probably you know has a an easy time access you know using his him as a resource. I'll say. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so that does it for the books we're going to talk about in detail. There are a couple of other uh, titles, uh, single issues that came out this week. Um, we're not going to – there is Harley I mean, screws up the DCU. Yeah, Multiversity, Harley screws up the DCU, uh, words by Frank Thierry, pictures by Logan Farber. I'm not reading it. Did you? Are you following along? Uh, well, I, I did read it. I, I, I can okay. – yeah. uh, well, Here's just a thoughts. quick comment on it. It's it's just uh, Harley screws up the DCU. The issue just consists of Harley uh, just, you know, ending ending up Harley. Harley finds herself a bunch of Harleys are screwing up the multiverse. And uh, one version of Harley ends up interfering with uh, the interfering with the origins of Superman and then subsequently interfering with the origins of Barry Allen. And this causes some serious, uh, serious problems. And uh, ultimately, other Harleys have to have to have to undo and and fix the screw-ups and the uh and then there's another universe of staros that the staros want to they've taken they they want to take over the multiverse and the staros now are targeting all the harleys in the multiverse because they for some reason which is unexplained they view harleys all these harleys as a threat to them taking over the multiverse and that's really it in a nutshell there's there's a lot of um uh, frank terry the writer makes he really does his best to try to imbue a lot of humor here, uh, 
a lot of the humor, I think, is a little bit forced, a little bit over the top. Uh, the Flash's origin is changed when they when they salvage Barry Allen's origin. One of the chemicals that Harley Quinn accidentally puts puts on the chemical shelf that's hit by lightning is a bunch of monkey urine. So the Flash now permanently smells like monkey urine. And uh, also one of the th one of the ways that they uh, managed to salvage the origin of Superman was that they uh, she told Laura to abandon her nannies, which were going to have an interference interference with with Kalal, young Kalal, by telling, by, by warning, by warning Laura, uh, of Laura and Jarrell that, uh, if she doesn't, you know, if she doesn't take Kalal, that he might get a, a case of space diarrhea. So, and there was also some comment that, uh, she made some comment that when she arrived on Krypton, Harley thought that Krypton, the scene looked like a Jewish circumcision ritual called a brie which since i'm not jewish i'm not I'm, I, yeah, I think it's called, it's called a what? bris a bris yeah yeah there's a strong jewish bias in this i i've no idea I've, i know nothing about jewish tradition and stuff but uh so uh some of the humor was lost on me but you know i could see that the attempt was made i'm not a fan of the art the art is sort of you know frankly i, I think this art would have I, the art artist is by uh, Logan Fiber or Ferber, uh, but you know, again, I'm not really sure where this is going. But again, it's the same type of humor. I would I would think that this would make a great story for the Harley Quinn cartoon, quite frankly, because I think it's right in that alley. So I, I think if you're fans of the cartoon, you might get a kick out of this, even though the style of art might be a little uh, bit off. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, all right. Collections this week, we have Gotham Academy trade paperback. It collects the whole thing, Gotham Academy 1 through 18 and Gotham Academy number 1. Uh, then we've got Wonder Woman Paradise Lost trade paperback. That's the classic Joe Kelly, uh, Demetrius story with Phil Jimenez and uh, George Perez on art. And then there's uh, Superman, Son of Kal-El, volume number 3, which collects issues 11 through 15 to finish out that series. Um and that's a hardcover for the uh, for the Kal-El book. Uh, also, the new champion of Shazam also has a hardcover, which collects the four issues of that series, written by Josie Campbell, Doc Shaner Art, which was – or I'm sorry, not um, Doc Shaner Art. Caitlin Yarsky did the art for that, did a fantastic job. So uh, if you're curious about those, check them out. Uh, that does it for – oh, I was going to mention the other um, single issues that we didn't cover. Looney Tunes number 272, Batman the Adventures Continue. Season three, issue number five, uh, Batman Scooby-Doo Mysteries number eight. Uh, and then Rocky mentioned Multiversity Harley Scoops up to DCU. I just, I just don't have an in me to, to read the Zany Harley anymore. But uh, give us your uh, pick for Book of the Week. Well, I, I feel um, we might have the same one. So I'll let you, I'll let you go first. I think I won first last time. Uh, yeah, I mean, listen, there are a lot of great books. Danger Street, could have picked that. Loved super, this issue of Superman Lost. Uh, Stargirl ended up on a really positive note. But I, I can't not pick Green Lantern. I can't not pick Green Lantern. It just, it was so funny. Like, again, like I totally trust Jeremy Adams. He's somebody who's writing and aesthetic and love for the DC Universe. I've come to believe in and trust implicitly. So, Again, I knew this was going to be good. I didn't have any doubts. And yet, he still surprised me. He still surpassed my expectations. He still had me smiling and enjoying and remembering why I love Hal Jordan, 
why Hal Jordan is my favorite Green Lantern. So I, yeah. I again, the other books are deserving. You know, Stargirl, as I said, meant, uh, ended on a high note. Really, really enjoyed Superman Lost. Incredible art. Um, and I, But Green Lantern, again, what Jeremy Adams did, the art by Zermanico, I just, I loved it. It was so fantastic. Um, well, yeah, really, really good. I agree 100%. I, I echo your sentiments. Green Lantern number one, hands down. I Nothing nothing came close to it, quite frankly, this week for me. Uh, although if I had to give a runner-up, I would go to Batman White Knight Presents Generation Joker because I thought it was a lot of fun with an AI Joker taking, taking his kids on a road trip to get to know him better. I, I thought that was a nice – it's a nice premise and I'm looking forward to it, especially uh, learning more about Agent Diana Prince and Jon Stewart that are promised to be in subsequent issues. So uh, overall, those two issues between – Green Lantern and Batman White Knight Generation Joker. I, I thought it was a good week. Yeah, really strong week. Uh, I don't think anything in my mind was bad. Um, so, yeah, really strong week. Uh, all right, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Be sure you go out and pick up Green Lantern. Participating stores should have a Green Lantern ring when you go and pick up issue one, so be sure you grab that. Um, don't forget to subscribe to Rocky's channel on YouTube if you're listening to us audio only or you haven't yet subscribed for some reason. You know what to do when it comes to YouTube. Ring the notification bell, subscribe, like this video, leave comments. We really enjoy interacting with uh, with people in the comment section. Conversely, if you always check us out on YouTube and you want to listen to some of the other audio-only content from the Comic Source channel, then just go to wherever you get your podcasts, do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe. I uh, had a great chat last week with the Bad Idea crew. They're currently running their uh, Kickstarter for Megalith, which you want to talk about amazing art. Oh my God, this might be the greatest comic book art I've ever seen. Um, and it's Louis LaRosa. It's written by Matt Kent. It's a fantastic story. Go check out the Kickstarter. Go listen to the episode. Uh, they give a, guys give a lot of behind the scenes. Been working on it for a long, long time. And that's one of the special things that Bad Idea does. They give the artists, they give the writer the time they need and the number of pages they need to tell the story that they want to tell. There's not in this worry about a monthly deadline. There's not an arbitrary number of pages they have to limit the story to, and it ends up uh, that's how you get your best stories. So I have a feeling that Megalith is going to be a book that is evergreen um, as well. So uh, anything to add, Rocky? Uh, no, just um, I'm. You got me into Megalith. I, I still have to choose my tier yet, and I know that they're they're selling out quick there on on the uh, on the bad idea uh, Kickstarter site. So, but I'm still decided. Hopefully, uh, in the next few days, I'll I'll pull the trigger on one of those tiers. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Things will sell out. They will not come back. And there are plenty of exclusives on uh, on the campaign. So that's gonna do it for this episode, everybody. We appreciate you joining us as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.